Good evening. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Dr Grace Blakely-Carroll, an exhibitions curator here at the library. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land, which we are now privileged to call home. If you have recently visited the 1968 Changing Times exhibition upstairs, no doubt you will have seen the display of some of the bespoke Fred Ward furniture that was commissioned for the library in the 1960s. A number of Fred's pieces, such as my personal favourites, the waste paper baskets, are still in use in the library today. Fred's furniture is part of the fabric of this institution. Many of you in the audience tonight will have sat at one of his tables while using the library's collections. Or perhaps you've perched in one of his chairs while taking in a view of the lake from the main reading room. Tonight we have an opportunity to learn more about Fred and his furniture designs. The library is proud to welcome Derek Wrigley, Meredith Hinchcliffe and Amy Jarvis, who will speak to the significance of Fred's furniture in the overall aesthetic of the library's building, which opened in 1968, so we're celebrating our 50th birthday of the building. Derek is a celebrated architect and industrial designer. He began his career as a lecturer at the University of New South Wales, where he established the first building science course for architects in Australia. He left this role to take up the position of assistant to Fred at the Australian National University and was appointed university architect on Fred's retirement in 1961. In 2013, Derek wrote and published a book about Fred's work, Fred Ward, Australian Pioneer Designer, um, which I'm sure many of you um, have copies of. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So I think it's, it's just been reprinted if you want to get your hands on it. Um, um, Meredith is, is a distinguished contributor to and supporter of the arts in Canberra. An experienced curator, writer and arts advocate, Meredith has served on the boards of many local arts organisations and I'm sure she's a familiar face to many. In 2013, she curated an exhibition of Fred's work at the then Gallery of Australian Design. Meredith also catalogued over 250 pieces of furniture designed by Fred at University House at the Australian National University. Amy expertly carries out the very enviable and important role of University Heritage Advisor at the Australian National University. She manages the ANU Design Unit Collection, which includes a large and significant collection of works by Fred and Derek and their many counterparts. Amy is also the co-founder and creative director of Canberra Modern, a festival and advocacy platform for the celebration and conservation of Canberra's mid-century modern heritage places and spaces. Please join me to welcome this expert panel. Thanks very much, Grace. Well, Derek, Amy and I will have a three-way conversation about the Fred Ward furniture in the library and elsewhere. It's a big topic, but we're going to try to stick to the timing that we've planned. We've lots of images and Amy's going to change them as required. We'll speak about some of them all, or some of them, but not all, that's the images. And 
Amy and I will ask Derek some questions to facilitate the conversation. I have known Derek for many years when I was the executive director of the Crafts Council of the ACT and I met Amy in 2013 when I was locating items for the exhibition of Ward that I curated at the Gallery of Australian Design. Fred Ward was born in 1900. He attended the National Gallery Art School in Melbourne and was a proficient draftsman and illustrator with pencil on paper, as you can see from this gorgeous cartoon or caricature. He created cartoons and sold them to the Bulletin and other publications. He had taken both woodworking and technical drawing classes in his spare time. He was part of a network of artists and others interested in the arts living and working in Melbourne from around 1920 until the beginning of World War II. He was friends with many of the great artists and designers of the time, such as the Boyds, Norman Lindsay, Sidney Nolan and Cynthia Reid and many more. Fred Ward's prolific career in design may readily be divided into two periods, the first in Melbourne, the second in Canberra. We will focus primarily on his Canberra period today and his, in particular his work here at the library. Ward had two strong beliefs. One was that Australia should have its own furniture style, challenging the perception that good things had to come from overseas. Fred's furniture offered a rare simplicity at a time where ornate antiques were the norm. He believed in simple furniture without carving and fussy curlicules and staining. Secondly, he believed Australian timbers in particular should be used and that their grains and patterns would be the main decorative features of his designs. He began making simple and functionally expressive furniture for the family's newly acquired home in Heidelberg in 1929. As soon as he had made something, friends bought the, the uh, furniture out from under them. At first a lucrative sideline, but, um, but soon Ward opened a small shop to sell his wares. In 1934, he constructed a room at the Arts and Crafts Society or annual, Society annual exhibition to display his furniture. Representatives from the Meyer Emporium saw the photographs, drawings and prototypes and purchased works which led around 1935 toward establishing a furniture design studio at the Meyer Emporium. Soon after the beginning of World War II, Ward went from Meyer to the Department of Aircraft Production at Fisherman's Bend. Derek, why was um, Fred Ward chosen to work on the manufacture of timber frames for the aircraft for World War II? Well, basically his knowledge of Australian timbers was pretty unique. Um, those of you who are old enough will know that during the war, we had two bombers. Uh, one was a Mosquito and the other was a Beaufort bomber, um, designed in England for using English timbers uh, for the fuselage and wings. Uh, but it was decided that Australia should do its bit by making them here as well. So a knowledge of Australian timbers uh, was absolutely essential because they do things that no English timbers would ever do. Uh, their warping and shrinkage tendencies are, are quite unique. 
uh, their moisture content had to be watched very carefully. S their strength was uh, uh, very great, but some of them were very brittle. And uh, of course, their availabilities in, in wartime. Uh, translation of the English manufacturing techniques was, had to be done to make it suitable for Australia. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the skills in jointing, gluing, the strengths of glue joints, um, were all something that Fred had, had a good experience with at Myers. And of course, the organisational skills to put it into effect. This was at uh, Fisherman's Bend, and it was very convenient for Fred. So, <laughs> I think. After the war, Fred went back to Maya, as well as pursuing several other projects. He believed that everyone should have access to well-designed, functional furniture, and he was also concerned about economy and practicality. He developed the pattern craft and blueprint ranges of DIY flat-pack furniture for returned servicemen using the Butterick pattern, paper pattern um, distributors and creators and advertised through Australian Home Beautiful, which was a highly successful project. And this was long before the advent of IKEA. In 1946, he also developed the DC-1 chair for Fleur, which was Fred Lowen and Ernest Roddick, which was a huge commercial success and saw the rapid growth of the Fleur venture. In the late 1940s, Fred was invited by Professor Brian Lewis to become a part-time lecturer in the School of Architecture at the University of Melbourne, a partnership that would soon prove very fruitful. Amy, I'll tell you some more. Thanks, Meredith. Uh, so the Fred we've been speaking about was a born and bred Melbournian, ingrained in the creative scene in Melbourne. So it must have been something very special to draw Fred, his wife Eleanor, known as Puss, and their young son Martin all the way to Canberra. In fact, it was an opportunity he couldn't refuse. I'll remind you all that after World War II, Canberra's population was around 28,000 people, hardly the thriving metropolis that Melbourne was, and some even called it a good sheep station spoiled. Um, here is a, an image of, um, of the ANU in 1950. Um, you can see uh, that there's, there's not much going on in terms of development in, right in the centre of Canberra, so things were, were pretty slow after the Second World War. But after winning a design competition of five designers, Fred was working on a large commission with his former lecturing colleague, Professor Brian Lewis. A bold new research university was in the works, known as the Australian National University, and Fred would be involved in what would soon be the jewel in its crown, and that is University House, which commenced in 1949. Opened in 1954, uh, things were slow for University House uh, in that post-war period. Um, it was a pillar of modernist design, simple and austere in its use of materials uh, in a tight post-war market, but elegant and grand in its use of space. Fred worked closely with Lewis on the design of the spaces, uh, the interior finishes, the fabrics and all manner of items, including cutlery and candlesticks. Fred's consideration of the human scale uh, in the furniture in contrast to the grand spaces, I think really well demonstrated here, looking at the, the Great Hall, was admirable. So here on, uh, you can see in the Great Hall, um, it's a cathedral-esque kind of space, but Fred uh, used this donkey brown colour on the ceiling to match the 
timber parquetry, which was done in Queensland walnut, which also then matched the wainscoting around the walls and the timber walnut, uh, sorry, the walnut furniture as well, to almost um, give the space a more human scale and make it more comfortable for people to be inside. Fred's work was acclaimed by the university administrators and in 1953, uh, um, he was asked by Vice-Chancellor Sir Leslie Melville uh, to establish an in-house design unit, which Derek asserts was the first and only in the world um, in university sectors. So Derek, it's about this time that you and Fred crossed paths. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you met Fred and, and how your work at ANU came to fruition? Yes, uh, this is a rather complicated little story. Um, depends on circumstances and who you know. It all started roughly in about 1953. I was building my second house at DY in Sydney, and I read in the Sydney Morning Herald an article um, uh, describing a lecture that uh, Nagy Coombs had given at the University of New South Wales uh, entitled Design in Manufacturing. Uh, Coincidentally, uh, I had just initiated the Society of Designers for Industry uh, in Sydney. Uh, there was one in Melbourne, um, uh, established by, of course, Fred Ward. Um, but I didn't know who Fred Ward was in those days. I was only a, a pommy. <laughs> um, so, uh, sometime later, uh, I... Um, I wrote to um, uh, Nugget Coombs. I didn't get a reply, but um, I did get a letter some weeks or months later uh, from a chap called Fred Ward in Canberra. Uh, this must have been about 1954, uh, because Fred had been badgering Ross Honan, who some of you may have known, uh, that we should be establishing an Industrial Design Council uh, of Australia, just like the one they had in London. Uh, it's, it's always easier to uh, uh, pick something that somebody else has done first and then try it. Um, then um, Ross said to uh, Fred, uh, well, why the hell don't you do something about it? So he did. and. Uh, he came to my house in D.Y. and uh, saw my home uh, and some of the furniture I had made, rather like Fred had made uh, at his house at, um, in Melbourne. He seemed to like what he saw uh, and invited me to uh, Canberra for a meeting with uh, Ross Holland and um, um, uh, Sir Roland Wilson who at that time was secretary to the Commonwealth Treasury. Oh, I was a little puzzled about that, nevertheless. And there was also a bloke called Ron Rosenfeld, uh, who was the secretary of the Society of Designers for Industry in Melbourne. It all gets a bit tied up. Anyway, um, Wilson, uh, we described this to Wilson and Honan, and, uh, and uh, Wilson said, okay, uh, I'll give you a hundred pounds, um, uh, see what you can do. Go and, uh, go and uh, concoct a story convincing me that we need an industrial design council. So Ron did his share in Melbourne, I did mine in Sydney. And we submitted it. 
Um, and then the next thing I know is that Fred invited me to join him at the uh, ANU design unit. So that must have been uh, at least 1956. So I arrived in Canberra January 57 and um, I explained uh, a concept that I uh, had been running around in my brain of total design within an organisation. That is, you look not only at the architecture, but uh, the site planning, the landscape, uh, the furniture, interiors, um, graphic design, and things of this kind. And uh, that seemed to take, get a little bit of traction. So Fred, um, in 1961, uh, Fred invited uh, Dr. Coombs to design, uh, sorry, invited by Dr. Coombs to design all the furniture for the Reserve Bank in Martin Place. Now, Fred couldn't do that job as well as uh, his job at the ANU. Uh, so um, Fred uh, then was sent overseas in 62 to by John Overall, who was then the commissioner for the National Capital Development Commission, uh, to study galleries and libraries. Um, no, uh, none of this information came through to us, unfortunately, uh, particularly about the, the library aspect. But um, Fred's skills as an artist uh, shone through in his presentation of the furnishing concepts for the many buildings uh, that, we, uh, that he had done at Myers. He was essentially a realist, and his sketches showed every detail of light and shade, reflections in glass and things of that kind, and particularly his love of good craft work. His clients loved that approach. And uh, when uh, asked to give a presentation to a committee, he would paper the walls with some of his pencil sketches, which were really quite, quite interesting, such as that one. His tools were very, very simple compared to what we have today, or what other people have today, I should say. Uh, he used pencil, paper, ruler, a rather large drawing board, because he had to put a full-size drawing of a chair on that board, with a T-square and a set-square. Uh, those were all that he had available. There were no computers in those days. Uh, everything had to be done with pencil on paper. So I'm sure you've gathered from Derek's <coughs> remarks there that this was an, incredi sorry, an incredibly fruitful time in Fred's career. And Derek continued Fred's legacy at the ANU until Derek's own departure in 1977, um, further implementing that theory of total design. Um, I wanted to also take the opportunity at this point to mention some of the, um, the other uh, people who helped bring Fred and Derek's designs to life at the ANU. Um, and that was a very fortuitous time uh, after the Second World War. So many of the craftsmen who made the designs uh, for the design unit, um, which then carried on relationships through the design careers of both Fred and Derek, um, were post-war European migrants who had set up shop uh, locally. Many of these were the Jennings Germans brought to Australia uh, by A.V. Jennings to build the Houses of Canberra. 
Um, a few names to mention which I think are worth, worthwhile doing. It's often the, uh, the people who put their, their hands to the wheels who don't get their names mentioned, so I thought we'd take the opportunity to mention a few. Carl Kluse, Conrad Dimple, Heinz Frank, Kurt Kloska, Oswald Paseka, Hans Pilik, Klaus Schrara, Alphonse Stutz, Tony Suban, Con Tobler, Klaus Schorn, Case Westra, um, and a few of these still live locally, um, and they, their role in bringing Fred and Derek's designs to life cannot be undersold. As I'm sure you can see, this is a, an image of the, the writing table that's also shown in this photo. Um, as you would be gathering from what Derek said, um, that Fred's standing in Canberra had also started to grow quite significantly. Um, he developed important relationships with the National Capital Development Commission, as Derek mentioned, university officials, of course, um, and local architects and artists as well. Um, and during their time at the ANU, Derek and Fred worked on several other commissions, including the Shine Dome, um, the Australian Academy of Science, which is pictured here. Um, also the Canberra University College and the Commonwealth Club, um, all during their time at ANU. And I know Derek was designing street furniture at this time for the NCDC, so they're all very busy, um, not only at work, but also outside. Um, as Derek mentioned, in 1961, Fred left the ANU uh, and embarked on a world tour for the NCDC to understand the, the requirements of galleries, museums and libraries. At this stage, seemingly unaware that he would be commissioned for the library. We're yet to, to make that connection in a document. <laughs> um, and as also, as Derek mentioned, in 1962, uh, Nugget Coombs, who was then uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia, um, asked Fred to do that important commission. So that brings us to about 1963, which is a pretty important time in history, and I'll pass back to Meredith to <laughs> take, us, take us from there. So the NCDC commissioned architects Bunning and Madden to design the National Library of Australia. Fred had developed, as Amy has said, Fred had developed a relationship with the firm during the building of Bruce Hall and the Arts and Economics Precinct at the ANU campus, and they were familiar with his design aesthetics. They also worked with artists Leonard French, who was commissioned at the ANU and then at the library to create the stunning stained glass windows here. Bunning sought permission from the NCDC to take over the design of furniture and the inclusion of artworks in the building, much like the commission at University House. Walter Bunning himself undertook a world tour in 1962 to report back on furniture and other library-related issues abroad. In 1963, he approached Fred to design the furniture that would be required for the building. This was Fred's last major commission. He was engaged for a year, and when they sought to extend his contract, he persuaded them that Arthur Robinson should join him. Fred and Arthur had both worked together at the ANU design unit, and Fred thought their skills were complementary. He proposed that they each be engaged half-time and Arthur came on board in 1965. In our research, we found a complete list of the furniture that Th Fred thought would be required, following consultations with some of the staff at the library, and especially, especially Geoffrey Clark. This list totaled 10,920 pieces of furniture, plus 16,000 metal shelving racks, and almost 200 individually designed items. It was a very big job. Can you tell us a little bit about Fred's design philosophy, Derek, and, and how that was applied at the library? Yes. Um, 
Fred's philosophy on furniture design uh, tallied pretty well with my own, although mine was in a much more uh, initial stage than his. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't have uh, invited me to join him in Canberra. Um, but uh, his policy um, and his philosophy on design was developed very largely um, in the design unit because we all had to work together. And it's um, quite logical, I think, that he carried that philosophy with him when he uh, came to do the National Library. Uh, we believed uh, at ANU and the design unit that our work should convey a, a spirit of Australianness, Australian timbers, having uh, a human quality uh, of warmth and softness that metal and plastics can't convey. There's no doubt about that. The fundamental functional need of any uh, of an item of furniture uh, should influence, of course, its ultimate form. Uh, visual enjoyment must usually be a, a secondary consideration. I like to think that it's 51% um, uh, function and 49% uh, enjoyment. Uh, but there should be no redundancy in, in any of our work. Uh, a rugged structure uh, to uh, withstand a lifetime of knocks uh, was particularly important at the university. Um, and uh, the question is of misuse. Um, the appropriate balance of the um, uh, major elements of a design are important appropriate size and proportions uh, relevant to the architectural space. That was particularly important when Fred was designing the uh, dining hall furniture for University House, because it's a huge space. And if you put an ordinary domestic table and chairs inside, uh, it might tend to look tiny. So it was quite a challenge. Um, another philosophical aspect would be an honest and respectful use of materials um, that had, uh, using materials that had no pretensions uh, of being what they were not. Now, that might sound a bit uh, quizzical, but um, uh, if I say that laminex finishes uh, which copied wood grains or soft vinyl that copied uh, leather texture, and things, you'd know, you know what I mean. Um, another item would be a, an honest showing of uh, the uh, jointing details. We tended not to uh, hide them, but to express them, because they are a functional part of the design of a piece of furniture. Uh, Bare-faced tenons, that is, uh, tenons, uh, the, you won't see any there, but um, where the tenon projects uh, uh, through the rail that it's meeting and it's probably cut off flush with probably two little wedges inside that really clamp the joint together. Those are the important little things and, are part, and showing them uh, was part of our philosophy.
uh, he liked a simple oiled satin finish to any uh, timbers, particularly table tops, because uh, when you have a, a lovely grain like Queensland walnut or blackwood or something like that, uh, a reflection on a highly glossy surface would destroy the, the picture of that, that very nice grain. So he liked the satin finish, which had about 5% gloss, which was very low. Uh, unfortunately, uh, maintenance people who come along afterwards tend to lose all these uh, finesse details and they go and stick on a, a born plastic full gloss and the result is awful. Uh, softening of arises, that is the, the edge there. If you notice, uh, there's probably a radius of one millimetre or two millimetres at the most. Um, carry that to extremes of a sharp arise, which uh, would be too sharp, uh, or um, making it a, a wider radius, it, the, the whole image of the furniture would look very soft, woolly, and uh, somewhat indistinct. Uh, simple, uh, in terms of upholsteries, Fred liked um, uh, the weaves uh, put on by Eclate, some of you may remember. They're now as a business, but uh, they use natural wool weaves of very simple patterns. Uh, Fred never used a pattern on a, on a weave to my knowledge. And um, so, yes, that's the end of that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so again, as Derek has mentioned, the furniture in the National Library certainly displays the key hallmarks of Fred's designs. Its simplicity, its elegance, its use of Australian timbers, and some express joinery, which we'll see further into these uh, slides here. There are a few items in the library's collection which are worth individually profiling. So rather than show you a bunch of photos of furniture, we'll, we'll actually go into a little bit of detail um, about a few key pieces. Some of these because they're so familiar, some of these which technology has made redundant, perhaps the ones behind me here, and some because they're out of the public eye and hopefully it's a treat for you to be able to see some of those today. Um, we'll note some of the unique features of Fred's design for the library that were not used on other commissions. Um, and the files in the library uh, state that Fred was also involved in other aspects of the library's interior design, such as carpet, fabric, wall coverings, and uh, even the theatrette in which we sit today. Um, though we suspect these seats might have been replaced, if not at least recovered. Um, the catalogue units that are um, lovely in the, uh, the image here behind me um, which are quite iconic to the library, I think, are elegant as well. They have an obvious aesthetic appeal, um, and as the historic photographs show, um, an, obviously, an obvious usefulness, sorry, in the days before computerisation and catalogues. With the solid timber units um, weighing a lot themselves, made of solid timber on solid timber bases with brass elements, uh, and many, many kilograms of paper inside, these units needed to be robust but operate smoothly. 
They also came with a complimentary consultation table. So um, I'll mention, Grace mentioned the exhibition earlier. Um, sorry for the photo here, but this, uh, this is actually the drawings of the cabinets that are in the exhibition. So the photos, um, I couldn't get a photo of them <laughs> without showing you a bit of a glass reflection. Uh, this is also the consultation stool. Um, so these uh, complementary consultation tables on which um, the catalogue drawers would be placed while the reader looked for their cards. And I'm sure many of you remember lugging out a catalogue drawer, placing it on the table and rifling through until you found what you were looking for. Um, so Derek, there must have been some significant design research that went into making a functional unit that was uh, able to take all of this weight but also operate smoothly. Mm. Um, and I must admit the ones here at the library look a little bit familiar to some I might have seen at the ANU. Would you like to make a comment <laughs> on that? Yeah, indeed. Uh, it was really quite coincidental that uh, we were working on the design of the Menzies Library in the ANU at roughly 1961-62 and Fred started work on the National Library in 63. So, uh, but when we, when we started we knew nothing whatsoever about Fred going to the library, the National Library. Um, Fred did learn a lot from his visit uh, mainly of not copying ideas, but of learning what not to do, <laughs> which is much more important. And, um, but Hans, Pilig and I at the design unit were working hard on uh, solving the problem uh, with the metal uh, units inside each drawer and there were hundreds of these. Uh, the problems were that um, we, uh, you could graze your knuckles when you're putting your hand in the, in the handle because the, the rod, holding rod uh, for the cards, uh, the knobs stuck out usually a little bit, that, uh, that much, and was probably knurled, that is, roughed up uh, in, the, in the process. So when you put your hand on the on the uh, handle, you graze your knuckles. And there were other things uh, about the mechanical card holding system uh, that we, we, we worked on at the same time. Um, we shared our design thing with Fred on when he returned from overseas. Uh, we, we did that a lot. I mean, we, we had no secrets. Um, but in, in retrospect, uh, it's interesting to recall the conversation I had with the uh, uh, university librarian uh, about these uh, uh, drawer card catalog units. I'll get it straight. Um, and I asked him a question. I said, "This uh, computerization was just uh, getting known, although there were no computers around at all." So I asked the librarian, I said, uh, are we wasting our time designing these card systems? Um, because of computerization, to take it all over, and do it all at uh, the press of a button. And he, uh, he said, uh, oh gosh, no, computerization will never, never <laughs> take that. Uh, 
So there must be thousands of redundant catalogue units all over the world, <laughs> and, and we've got our share. <laughs> um, I should also mention there was about 100 of these made for the library, which we found in that same list of furniture. Um, and we also found in the files that Fred had also looked at the Balio Library in Melbourne and the Monash mm. University Library as well to see that if any technology had changed and to understand if anyone was, uh, was doing anything differently before the library units were made. Some of the most beautiful pieces of furniture in the library are out of the public eye. They're in the private executive areas of the building. The council room and the director general's office are furnished with bespoke pieces designed for function and elegance to complement the high-level meetings and positions of the people who occupied those spaces. The director general, uh, this is the council room. Um, the director general of the library when it opened was Sir Harold White and there is a, a photo of him coming up when we talk about his desk in a moment. Oh, okay. Um, so, Derek, can you explain some of the design elements shown in, in um, these pieces? Yes. The centre table uh, is a real masterpiece of furniture design. Um, not only for its elegance, its construction, and the assembly of its size. It can be taken to bits. Uh, obviously, um, the soft panels, uh, the, the, sorry, the dark panels uh, between the ribs there um, are of a soft elastic vinyl which became popular around that time and uh, Fred used it very well by making it a separate inset panel, I think. And there you see a detail of a corner of the, the dark green uh, vinyl and the, um, uh, the timber on the outside. Whilst on this, it's interesting to note that Fred uh, normally insisted on a mitre joint at that point at the ANU. And for some reason, I'm, I'm not quite sure, uh, he chose a back joint here. Um, but. With a back joint, you, unless your timber is really seasoned, uh, you can get an awkward uh, mismatch when one piece shrinks and the other doesn't. So, uh, why he did that, I do not know. Um, the cruciform legs, as you see in the uh, top left, uh, are a fairly unique um, introduction for legs. Uh, but it was governed partly by the uh, uh, fixing of the adjustable leg, uh, adjustable foot underneath it. It's a great pity, I think, that the public cannot see uh, this particular room in normal, normal circumstances. The credenza, uh, if we could go on to that, <coughs> this is apparently Fred's original sketch for it, but the reality turned out quite different and much, much better. <laughs> it has a, an elegant simplicity about it that is really uh, almost surprising because these are four doors, but there are no handles. Uh, all you have to do is just touch the top of the door and there's a touch light inside and the door opens and you just pull it open. It's really very simple. It's a, a fine piece of workmanship. 
the um, uh, Director General's desk, again, is another uh, piece. If we could have the next slide, perhaps. Uh, is there one more? Yeah, this one. Oh, yes. That, this was Fred's original pencil sketch. It didn't turn out quite like that, but that's how he sold uh, the design to Harold White at the time. Um, the centre panel, well, forget that one. The, the, the centre panel was, again, the soft vinyl, um, which is all right when you have a director general at the table, but when you have students with ballpoint pens, it's another thing altogether. Um, the box, as it turns out, is really very beautiful. It's in Queensland Walnut uh, with typical handles, uh, which uh, only one person in Australia used to make or design. So these are, it's a pity that w the public can't see these. It would be very nice if they could. Can we move on to the chairs now, Derek? Yes. Um, so Fred designed several types of chairs for the different areas of the library building. Each of them varied subtly to differentiate its location in the library and also to stop it from going walkabout. Um, the chairs and tables, uh, this is the Asian reading room here shown in this photo. Um, the chairs and tables were made in different timbers for different areas, um, again to differentiate their, their home location. Um, and they're examples of black bean, Queensland walnut and silver ash, as well as the use of subtle design differences on each of the chairs. As this image shows, there's essentially one basic chair frame applied in four different ways and of course one different material. Obviously this one at the end is done in tubular steel. Um, Derek, you mused in your book about the library design that um, the same design of chairs for executive staffs and the public was an egalitarian gesture by Fred. Do you want to comment on that? Um, <laughs> I have no direct knowledge of this, but uh, uh, Fred was inclined towards this sort of philosophy uh, by his very nature. Um, but the... Uh, the reason, perhaps, why uh, there's a similarity here is that uh, it was possibly uh, because of the economy of having the same structure for a range of chairs where you change, say, the back rail or you change the um, upholstery or something of that kind. Um, so uh, some economy was certainly achieved uh, in having um, there, there's, there's three versions of the same structure um, and uh, it, when we're talking about uh, redundancy of rails, there is one redundancy in those chairs that I'm not going to tell you but I'll leave it to you to find out. <laughs> um, we can I might just go back a bit. The metal chair on the right has the same sort of character, uh, so it didn't look out of place in the library when placed with the chairs. Uh, a walk around the building uh, uh, reveals uh, the fact that uh, another designer has been uh, employed uh, since Fred died in 1990, and uh, because there are several changes around uh, particularly when uh, uh, the uh, difficulty of four-legged uh, chairs on casters proved so 
such so problematic, and they became five. So uh, a mass change uh, was uh, was put in place. The ergonomics re revolution seems to have made many changes necessary, but they were not always justified. We'll move on to the reading room, and, and I'm as um, Grace said, I think, in her introduction, most of you will have used the reading room one way or another. There are a few key design features of this space, which you might not have noticed, however. The polished brass leg adjusters on the table so they don't rock. The brass gives an effect, effective gleam of gold among the black bean timber. And as Derek has written in his biography, the combination of brass and black bean added a prestigious quality to this huge room. The cruciform motif on the corners is not seen in other designs of Fred's. And the use of, um, as Derek mentioned, the use of open tenons as a purely functional item which add aesthetic interest. Um, despite their size, they are appropriate and have a human scale in this room with its very high ceilings. At some point, individual corrals were installed and they are another example of Fred Ward's relentless focus on function. But these, as Grace, I think, said, these are perhaps the, the baskets mm -hmm. are the outstanding uh, things. And these beautiful baskets are purely functional but so elegant. So what do they tell us about Fred, Derek? <laughs> uh, well, as you've gathered, I think... Fred was a down-to-earth person. Uh, he needed to be, to be a good designer, I think. Uh, he loved the basic crafts, um, which very, uh, and in this case, the wicker basket echoed something that he did for University House in the 1950s. Um, wood, wicker, um, natural yarns, have a visual um, as well as a physical warmth which relates well uh, with our human qualities. And this waste paper basket, I feel, is a bit of fun on Fred's part. I think he's, he's really having a quiet joke. And, uh, it's a, but it is a, a reminder of our past when crafts had much uh, more significant uh, role in our lives, and metal and plastics uh, really don't have the sort of quality that we, we would like to use. Unfortunately, staff changes, uh, loss of original maintenance instructions, and new health regulations which lack soul, inverted commas, <laughs> uh, mean that odd things happen, like plastic bag liners. <laughs> Surely that's uh, another design problem that should be put on the to-do list <laughs> of the library. <laughs> Thanks, Derek. Um, just noting, this is the University House soiled linen basket that Derek was referencing there. Um, to, so I guess to sum up the formal part of the evening, we all three of us wanted to make some short closing remarks, um, each from a personal perspective and, um, and firstly from me, who I'll note is a built heritage professional and not a designer. Um, I believe that Fred had a unique perspective, living through two world wars and the Great Depression 
Derek describes him as a quiet, down-to-earth achiever who was confident in his own skills and rarely needed prototypes. An excellent, intuitive designer who was able to strip down a problem to its bare essentials with no unnecessary pretensions. In Derek's book, he mentions a quote on Fred's, that he saw on Fred's drawing board, which struck me as something we should all perhaps keep in the back of our minds. There is always a better way. Short and sweet, but I think very powerful. What's often now referred to as Fredwardian furniture is, is iconic and increasingly valuable and collectible. But so many Fred, of Fred's designs are invisible to the public because of their bespoke nature, hidden in the executive and special areas of some of Australia's most important buildings and even overseas. Perhaps a contrast to many of his design contemporaries of the era who designed for the commercial market and probably got a lot more accolade in the public eye. Fred was far ahead of his time as well, and sadly many of his pieces, and um, admittedly many of those at the ANU, were regrettably discarded in a flurry of ergonomics and, uh, and a need for shiny and new. Um, Derek also wanted to mention how much of Fred's work had been miscredited, and often you can go on eBay and anything with a Maya Heritage sticker on it is credited to Fred, and it's quite difficult because his, his work is often copied and often miscredited. And I also probably should give, um, give a shout-out to Derek as well. Often Derek's work is credited <laughs> as Fred, so we should make, make sure, especially at the ANU, that we call the collection of furniture, the ANU Historic Furniture Collection, by the design unit. Um, and that's anything that's not done for University House, we, we credit to the group of people. Um, personally, I wish I'd had the chance to meet Fred, but I must say how privileged I am to have had the chance to learn about him from Derek, as well as having the privilege to work with Derek himself. To understand design in a way I never thought imaginable, especially from someone without a creative bone in my body. <laughs> I do feel honoured, though, to know Fred through his designs and count my lucky stars to have the rare privilege to be a custodian of a small amount of his work and, of course, that of Derek and the, their design unit counterparts. Managing the collection has taught me that good design is timeless. Well-made items will last for as long as they are cared for, um, which is certainly the case here at the National Library. Well, I hope that we've reminded you all of the strong philosophy that Fred had, the, the importance of good design to everyone, and his egalitarian beliefs. He was particularly concerned about men who returned to Australia after World War II, many of whom were a bit, at a bit of a loss. And this was one of the reasons that he designed the pattern craft furniture that we mentioned. Um, Fred Ward and Derek too believed that everyone should be taught design at school, that everyone should be visually literate, literate and appreciate the value of good design. He believed that good design could solve most problems. It costs no more to produce a well-designed object than it does a poorly designed object, whether it's a cup or a stapler or a complicated desk. Fred obviously had an ongoing design with the uh, relationship with the library after the building had been opened because we found lots of drawings in our research, looking, going through the files, looking for... Um, for things that we could speak about tonight. So um, I think that that's quite an important thing, that, that they obviously wanted to maintain the, the kind of the design integrity of all of the furniture. There are many things that we're grateful to Fred Ward and Derek for. The establishment of the, design, the Society of Designers for, for Industry in Melbourne, the New South Wales chapter, um, the dis establishment of the... the um, Industrial Design Council of Australia. And I think we need to acknowledge that, um, that both Fred and 
Derek have really had such an extraordinary commitment to design in Australia. I feel very honoured to have had so much to do with the Fred Ward furniture in the last five years, although I have been familiar with it for decades. I was lucky enough to meet Fred in the late 1970s and it's probably then that I learned about his furniture. And I've learned all that I know from Derek. Thank you, Derek. Very honoured to have spent this time with you. Um, and I'm really grateful to both Derek and Amy for all the work in, in putting together this, um, this talk. And before I finish, um, we all wish to thank the library very much for inviting us to talk about Fred Ward's work. We're all devotees and could have talked for hours, but we're very pleased to have that, that the library gave us this opportunity. I'm uh, more grateful than I can express that Fred Ward and his wife, Eleanor, uh, plus too, ma too many of her friends, uh, came into my life in 1956 and ended in 1990. Uh, their son, Martin, I, I believe is in the audience tonight somewhere. But uh, uh, our design philosophies, as I've said, were very similar and I ended up filling his shoes as head of the uh, ANU design unit. I can hear him now in my head. Uh, and from the many discussions that we had over coffee time, um, and discussions on design and architecture, and one relevant statement stands out that I feel sure uh, Fred would like me to say here. Architecture, in its own right, might create a pleasant environment externally, but without all the many elements of furnishing its interiors, uh, would be the, the building will be utterly useless to human beings. Just uh, ponder on that statement. He would ask us to imagine uh, this magnificent building without any furnishings at all. Just an empty, reverberative shell with nowhere to sit down, nothing to write on, no bookshelves, curtains or soft floor coverings, no direction signs, no room numbers or appropriate light fittings all of which are the links between us and architecture, uh, of bare shells that we would have to live and work in. Uh, we owe it to people like Fred to make us more aware of the value of the many items we tend to take for granted. It's all part of the furniture. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed it. <laughs> May I mention one more thing? There is a little exhibition upstairs that I, uh, has uh, uh, one element uh, describing a little bit of what we've been talking about. Um, and sit in the talking chairs 
because there is, again, another excerpt uh, about the same thing. Uh, well worth listening to. And if I could quickly um, make a plug, Derek's uh, book about Fred um, is available in limited <laughs> supply in the bookshop. Um, and I just wanted to point out the, the reasoning behind this image just as a, as a way to leave you um, and open up the floor for questions. This is a, an image of Fred's own lounge room. Um, and the reason that we found it so poignant to use um, as the, the image which Derek closed on today was that, as you can see, Fred, two of Fred's chairs here. The small table you see there was a gift from the ANU, designed by Derek, made in-house to Fred on his departure from the ANU. And the sculpture on the table was a gift from Derek to Fred's wife. So that's quite a beautiful kind of way to round out the relationship of, of Fred and Derek in quite a simple image there. And so I just thought that was worth mentioning as well. So thank I'd you. I'd like much. to give credit to Hans Billig who made that table. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to stop there. <laughs> Thank you, um, Derek, Meredith and Amy for that enthralling discussion. And I don't think any of us are, are going to be able to look at Fred's furniture in quite the same way. Um, and I'm sure we all could have sat here and listened to you for hours, but <laughs> alas. Now, we do have time for some questions from the audience. Um, if I can ask that you please uh, raise your hand and a microphone will be brought to you. Um, and please wait for the microphone um, before asking your question uh, for the benefit of all our guests. Everyone's oh, we've got to back. I would ask you to speak up, please, because I'm very getting very deaf. There's a microphone, Derek. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Uh, yeah, my question is about um, Fred's trip overseas, and if he made any connections that he kept in contact with. We don't know. There's no record of that that we've been able to find. There is, um, there is a report in the library catalogue of, that Fred wrote to the NCDC, which we, um, we didn't access. In terms of, um, of where he went and who he spoke to, that's part of the library catalogue, so that might be worth looking up as well. Um, I just wondered what happened to the design unit at ANU. What happened to the design unit at the ANU? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Loaded question. <laughs> Quite frankly, I couldn't stand the administration in 1976. I retired in 1977. I'm sorry to have to say that money is taking over the world. It's becoming the new arbiter of taste. And uh, uh, a lot of things that are being decided today are not uh, properly designed. It, it's a symptom of our society, I'm afraid, but um, perhaps I shouldn't say any more. <laughs> um, functionally, inside the ANU, not only do we manage the furniture collection, but um, there is uh, a drafting office um, and there also is uh, a graphic design team within the university. So those are, I guess, the last threads of, of what the design unit used to be, which was a, a full suite of designers. It's a, it's a very... Um international um, style that you find within, within the library and within um, uh, spaces of the university. Um, to what extent 
Oh, what, were, what were the influences, both on Fred and on you, um, Derek, um, in terms of national origins? Were they European modernism? Were they Japanese um, uh, architecture? Were they British folk crafts? What were those broader influences? I would like to say that there are no influences at all. <laughs> we don't believe in copying. We like to think that we can solve a problem that's presented to us in as simple a way as possible. And uh, w there's never any attempt, I I'm sure on Fred and my part, uh, of doing it in a Japanese style or a Chinese style or whatever. We solve the problem to the best of our ability using uh, the circumstances with which we're surrounded, the materials that are available, and so on. So, um, no, we, we d deliberately do not copy. The, the trip that Fred took in 1962 was his first overseas trip. So, apart from any written and um, photographic material, he wouldn't have ever picked up any other influences. But learning from other people's mistakes is a different matter. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to also ask about that, um, that tension, perhaps, between the international inspiration and, and that making Australian. And one thing that does seem quite obvious is the coloration of the timbers and the, it's that sort of um, khaki bush colour almost of the, uh, of the timbers and the, and the vinyl coverings and the, the, the muted palette. Um, of, of the fabrics that, that seem quite Australian. Um, uh, but I also just wanted to ask, were there any subscriptions to any international magazines that came in regularly to the office? I'm afraid I couldn't understand anything that <laughs> you said. She was, she was asking whether there were any subscriptions to international magazines that, were, that came into the design unit. No, none. I don't remember anyone coming, any magazine coming in. Um, I we, di we, I we didn't need to. We don't need to. Uh, I mean, it's all very well to see what everybody else is doing, but it does colour you somewhere. There's some influence goes in. Uh, we prefer not to see it, in a way, because we, we had our own circumstances in the ANU. Uh, and uh, we, we met them. They were very, very largely technical, um, audiovisual things, uh, how to make a successful theatre, and so on. So we managed without. Um, I was just going to mention on the on the idea of magazines. Meredith mentioned the Pattern Craft um, series of of works was. Uh, put out through Australian Home Beautiful. And I just wanted to show just how beautiful the graphics are for, for that series um, of patent craft here, which were advertised in a magazine to the post, um, the return serviceman, which um, an unrelated but also very beautiful image to show that we didn't get time to show during the presentation. This, the Australian Home, Home Beautiful was published for years and years and years, and um, Eric Wilson was one of the, the authors who wrote regularly about Fred's furniture and about... and Puss herself wrote a lot for it as well, and that was published monthly. Unfortunately, oh, we've run out of um, time tonight, okay. but I hope you have enjoyed yourselves oh. this evening as much as I have. 
And um, if you haven't already, I encourage you all to visit the library's exhibition, uh, 1968 Changing Times, um, and view some of Fred's furniture, explore the collections and discover your own stories. So the galleries will reopen at 10 a.m. tomorrow and the exhibition is on display until the 12th of August. Um, and the final day of the exhibition actually coincides with our National Library Open Day, um, which you're all invited to, and you can find more information about the Open Day on our website. And as, as was also mentioned, Derek's book is also available from the Library Bookshop, um, which can also be purchased online. So please um, join me in thanking um, Amy, Meredith and Derek once again. And, and thank you to all of you for coming tonight and we hope to see you at the library again soon. Thank you.